Our scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May the Lord bless this reading of his scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, my prayer for this morning is very simple. I want to ask you to reveal to us the glory of Gethsemane today. Help us to see what was accomplished there, and help us to embrace the life that was won for us there. I love you, Father, and I trust you for what you'll do now. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. For most of the people who were there at that time, it was a special night. It was a part of an annual religious festival and a national holiday that called upon every able-bodied Jew to travel to Jerusalem with their families, if at all possible. And so the city of Jerusalem was literally bursting at the seams. It was teeming with activity as people were celebrating in one way or another the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The celebration served to commemorate the day by the command of the Lord when the Lord took His people by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. It celebrated the day when he commanded them to sacrifice the Passover lamb and to put some of the blood of it on their doorposts so that when the angel of the Lord came by their house, he would pass over their homes and spare them from the death that was literally filling the land in that day. These feasts were to celebrate the day when the people of God fled from Egypt in such haste that they didn't even have time to put leaven inside of their bread. And so the bread didn't raise and they ended up eating flat or unleavened bread. And so it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Flattened Bread. These feasts were to commemorate the day that marked the beginning of the liberation of the people of God from a most powerful oppressor, 
Egypt. And you'll remember from our time in Genesis and Exodus that in these days Egypt was the most powerful country in the world and their gods were the most revered and worshipped gods in the world. But this time was now marking the liberation from this power and from these false gods. And it marked the march toward the promised land, that place that was flowing with milk and honey, that place that was teeming with God's provision and God's delight for His people. And not only did the celebration of the Passover feast and the the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorate past events, but this celebration also prophesied about future events. It foretold the day when the Lord would send the true Passover lamb whose blood once shed would take away the sins of the world. It foretold of the day when this lamb would crush his enemy under his feet, that old serpent who is called the devil, who deceived Adam and Eve and wreaked havoc on the world. It foretold of the day when this lamb would deliver anyone who believes in him from this most powerful oppressor and begin the march with them toward the promised land, toward that garden in heaven where there are pleasures forevermore and eternal provisions, things that can never be corrupted, things that will never be taken away. Indeed, for most people who were there that night in Jerusalem, it was a special night. But they had no idea how special it was. They didn't understand that the prophecy of Passover was about to be fulfilled in their very midst, right in their presence. They did not know. They did not perceive that the history of the world had been driving toward this moment and that everything was literally hanging in the balance. Everything was literally on the line this night. They did not understand that the fate of humanity and of the kingdom of God on earth was about to be determined in a little corner of the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. Two days earlier, Jesus had gone to the home of a man named Simon with some of his disciples, and there they enjoyed food and fellowship with one another. There, a woman named Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, she walked into that house and she anointed Jesus with an oil, his head and his feet, It was very strong, it was very fragrant, and it cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000. 12 ounces of ointment, $20,000 poured out upon the head and feet of Jesus Christ. This was a gift, an anointing fit only for a king, and indeed Jesus Christ was and is the King of Kings. But Mary had no idea that her gracious act of worship was actually preparing the body of Jesus for the suffering and death and burial that was lying ahead of him in the days to come. She did not understand that this strong and pleasant and long-lasting fragrance was a gracious gift from his Father that would remind Jesus to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. Two nights later, back to the evening of the Passover, Jesus is now enjoying the Passover meal with his disciples, a meal that we've come to know as the Last Supper. There, Jesus reclined at the table with his closest friends, and the fragrance of his body still filled the room. The fragrance of the joy that was set before him still filled the room. After warning his disciples that one of them would betray him to death, he took the bread and he broke the bread, And he passed it and said, take and eat, this is my body. 
And when they had eaten, he took the cup and filled it with wine and passed it to them. And when they had drank up all the wine, he said to them, understand what has just happened. This is the blood of the covenant. My blood, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the last day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I will not enjoy this feast again until the joy that is set before me comes into its fullness. But oh, my beloved disciples, when it comes into its fullness, we will feast together again. Oh, we will feast together again. And so it was that with a deep sense of joy and of hope and of anticipation, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. Wouldn't you love to be there for that? Wouldn't you just love to hear Jesus' singing voice? I sure would. We don't know exactly what they sang, but it's very likely that they sang one of the traditional Passover hymns, which are preserved for us in Psalms 113 through 18, in Psalm 136. I want to encourage you sometime later today to go back and read those Psalms and put yourself in the skin of Jesus, knowing what's about to happen to you. Read those Psalms. Imagine yourself singing them and think what it would have been like for Jesus to sing those particular words on this particular night. Psalms 113 through 118 and Psalm 136. Believe me, if you'll read them with these eyes, you'll never see them the same again. Some Easter Sunday, I'm going to preach about that because there's some real treasures hidden there. Whatever his disciples sang, after they sang, Jesus led them to the Mount of Olives. And don't miss that. Jesus led them. He's in the front. They're following. It's time to go to the Mount of Olives. This mount was on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And once they got there, Jesus said something to his disciples that surprised them and probably hurt them a little bit. Certainly they didn't understand. He told them, listen, and listen to me carefully. Every one of you will betray me. You've walked with me for three years. You've been faithful to me. Other people have left. You have not left. But in the coming hours, you will leave. You will all fall away. Why? Because it is written in the Scripture. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I, the Lord God Almighty, will lay my hand upon my son, and when I strike him with that lasting blow, even his closest companions will flee from him in every direction, so you will be scattered. But, Jesus continued, when I raise again from the dead, I will go before you to Galilee. Meet me there. I just love this about Jesus. Even when he has to tell his disciples a hard and stinging and piercing truth, even when he has to prophesy about very difficult things, he always mixes it in with the hope that is set before him and the hope that is set before them. Here he's telling his closest friends, all of you are going to betray me, and yet don't worry, I'm going to rise from the dead and my mercy will be upon you. Oh, the Lord is so good. But the disciples were blind to the hope that he had just set before them, and they were angry at him with what he had just said. They did not take well to the prophecy, and so they began to vehemently object and to tell him in no uncertain terms that they would stay loyal to him no matter what happened. Though everybody else in the world might fall away, these who had been faithful to him for these three years would never, ever fall away. They had no idea that in a matter of minutes, 
every one of them would fail Jesus because they had no power to live their lives for him until he laid his life down for them. That's simple. So with that, Jesus led his disciples now to a particular part of the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is to the east side of Jerusalem. Now Jesus took them to the northwest corner of the Mount of Olives, to a little area called Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane means oil press. Remember that. And if you're a note taker, write that down. Gethsemane means oil press. This is the part of the Mount of Olives. This is the part of the garden where the olives that God had so graciously provided would be crushed in order to produce the life-giving oil. And it's no accident that this whole scene is happening right there in the garden of crushing. In this garden of crushing, Jesus instructed his disciples to stay where they were, to wait and pray. He was going to go off and seek the Father. And he took with him his three closest companions, Peter and James and John. And going on a little farther, the Bible says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Though Jesus had known that this moment was coming for quite some time, the weight of the sins of the world and of the wrath of his Father began to land on him with great force. And so he said to his three beloved disciples with a tone of anguish that they had never heard, he said, listen to me, my closest friends, listen to me. My soul is so overwhelmed right now with sorrow that I feel like this sorrow is literally going to choke the life out of me and crush me to death. I feel that it will kill me. Jesus was not exaggerating, beloved. And so he told his disciples, wait here and pray. Cry out to our Father with me. I'm going to go off a little farther by myself and I'm going to pray. You wait here. You stay awake. You watch. You pray. I'll be back. The disciples They love Jesus. These are the three that were with Jesus on the top of the mountain of transfiguration. These are the three that were closest to him, who were his inner, inner circle. They loved him. They wanted to understand him and obey him, but I'm sure that they were very confused by this. I'm sure that his anguish made no sense to them because they had just been at a meal where they, they had such a hopeful, joyful time together and where he prophesied to them about things to come, and yet they did what they could to obey, and Jesus went off by himself. And he fell to his face on the ground. He put the the face of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he put it right in the dirt, and he cried out in prayer and said, Abba, Father, you have always loved me. You have shared your glory with me in all of its fullness from the beginning of time, and you will to the end of time. You have sent me to this earth to display the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness by laying my life down to seek and save the lost. And Father, I love you with everything that's in my heart, but my dearest Father, all things are possible for you. So please, Father, I beg of you, please, I beg of you, remove this cup from me, Father. Please, Father, make a way out. Please, God, there must be some way for me not to have to bear your wrath for the sins of the world. Please, God, please make another way. 
Oh, he was crying to the Father with loud cries, with loud tears. Luke tells us that drops of blood began to flow from his brow because he felt these things so deeply. And yet he said the words that would change the world. Yet, my Father, not what I will, but what you will be done. And with that, Jesus got up off the ground and still writhing in anguish, he went back to his disciples expecting them to be praying, but instead he found his beloved ones sleeping. Instead of calling on the name of the Father in this hour of Jesus' greatest need and in this hour of their greatest need, they were crashed out. They were totally blind to the things that God was doing right in front of their face. Right in front of their face. This was probably the most important night in the history of the world, and beloved, they did not have eyes to see. Jesus was fully awake in his body and more importantly in his spirit. And so he woke them up and he said specifically to Peter, he said, Peter, really? Are you asleep? Could you not watch one single hour with me? After all we have been through, you could not pray with me for one single hour, you who so boldly declared that you would never fall away from me. I tell you, Peter, watch and pray. Stay awake and seek the face of your Father in heaven so that you may not enter into temptation because, Peter, your spirit may be willing. You may think that you do not want to fall away from me, but believe me, your flesh is more weak than you think and you need the power of God in order to endure. So wake up, Peter. Wake up. I'm not talking mainly about your physical body. I'm saying to you in the Spirit, Peter, wake up. Discern the moment and seek the face of the Father with me. These three disciples had never seen Jesus like this, so consumed with anguish, such a tone in his voice, and yet wanting to obey him. They were gripped to the core and did what they could, and Jesus went off by himself, and he prayed for a second time again. He fell to his face for a second time again. He said to his Father for a second time again, with loud crying, with tears, with drops of blood flowing from his brow. Beloved, do you understand the reality of these words? He's crying out in pain, Oh, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you, so please get me out of this situation. Please, my Father, please deliver me from this hour. Please make another way. Oh, please, my Father, hear my prayer. And yet, I must say, I want to say, it is the the deepest delight of my heart to say, not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus returned to his disciples for a second time, and for a second time he found them sleeping again, and so he woke them up again and tried to rouse them to prayer. He tried to help them understand the importance of the the historical importance of the moment that was lying right before them. He bid them to watch and pray again, and with this he went off for a third time where he fell to his face in the dirt for a third time and called upon the name of his Father for a third time and said, Oh, Abba, Father, 
All things are possible for you, so please get me out of this situation. Please, my Father, deliver me from this hour. Please, my Father, make another way. Please, my Father, hear my prayer. And yet, I smell the fragrance of the oil. And I want to say, it is the deepest delight of my heart to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Beloved, can you see his face lifted up to the Father, streaming with tears, streaming with blood, stained with the dirt that his face had just been planted in? Father, not my will, but your will be done. With this third cry, Jesus returned to his three disciples for a third time where he found them sleeping again and he said, are you still sleeping? Still taking your rest? Are you still so blind to the things of God? Are you still so dull to the things of God? It's enough. I've pled with you all that I can plea. I've prayed to my Father all that I can pray and in his silence, I hear his gracious answer. The hour has come. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So get up, because everything is about to go down. Beloved, as I said, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, had a front row seat to what may be the most important night in the history of the world. And they were totally blind to what was taking place right before their eyes. Let me see if I can unveil this a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as a pinnacle of his creation, he created a man and a woman in his image. And he bound them together in a covenant relationship that we call marriage. And he set them in a place called the Garden of Eden. More literally, that means the Garden of Delight. So the Garden of Eden means the Garden of Delight. Remember that as well. That's important. God had made provision for the man and the woman in this garden. He had prepared great pleasures for them there. And God gave them the easiest command that you could ever imagine. He said to them, Indulge yourselves in everything that I have created for you. Enter into the joy of your God. Enter into the joy of your Master. There's only one thing that I forbid you to do. You see that tree? That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. Of everything else you may eat, don't touch that one thing because the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so, beloved Adam, especially Adam, as the head of that first family, had a very important decision to make. And the decision was this. Would he obey the will of God? Or would he follow the will of another? John Salehammer is one of the foremost Genesis scholars in the world. And he makes a very strong case that the borders of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, are roughly equal to the borders of the Promised Land where Israel would later dwell. So please take a moment and get this in your mind. The, the, the borders and the size of the Garden of Eden are roughly equal to the borders and the size of the promised land in which Israel would later come and conquer and dwell. 
They are essentially the same place. At least that's what Salehammer argues. And I am very, very persuaded by his arguments. I've spent many, many hours looking into what he has to say, and I'm persuaded. So the point for us is this. The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil was stuck right in the middle of the garden, which means that the Garden of Eden where Adam had to make his decision and the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had to make his decision were roughly speaking in the same place. They may not have been on the exact same spot, but I'll tell you, I wouldn't put it past God that Adam and Jesus were literally standing on the same exact ground when they made their two decisions. But one way or the other, I want you to understand the connection between the Garden of Delight and the Garden of Crushing. They're basically in the exact same place. Tragically, things didn't go well in that first garden. Tragically, the serpent, the devil, came and tempted Adam to prefer his will over God's will. Tragically, Adam failed to call upon the name of the Lord and draw upon his power to overcome his hour of temptation. Adam, like Peter, trusted in himself and thought that he would never fall away from God. So why would he need to pray in this hour, he thought? Because he failed to call upon the name of the Lord, Adam tragically looked right in the face of God, as it were, and said, listen, not your will, but my will be done. You have been immensely clear and gracious in your command, but I think I'm going to take another path. No, thank you. Not your will, but my will be done. And with that, he and his wife ate the forbidden fruit. With that, he and his wife crushed the human race. With that, he and his wife brought utter corruption into our hearts and an endless variety of sin into the world. With that, Adam and his wife cut us off from God the Father who had been so gracious to us and they brought upon us his wrath. Indeed, if it were not for the mercy that overflows in the heart of God, God would have wiped out humanity right there on the spot because of the decision that Adam made. And none of us would ever have had the privilege of tasting life. But God is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he made a prophecy to Adam right there in the middle of that first garden. Two things, actually. First of all, he said to him in words, he said, listen up. Your offspring and the offspring of that serpent, they're going to be at war with each other. It's going to be a war more vicious than you can imagine. Every single sin and every sense of brokenness in this world will be traceable to this war between your offspring and his offspring. He will bruise your offspring's heel, but your offspring will crush his head. He will overcome. This is a prophecy about Christ right there in the midst of the garden. Second thing the Lord did was he killed an animal and he covered Adam and Eve in the skin of that animal. This was a prophecy that one day the Lamb of God would be slain and they would be covered in the skin of the Lamb. They would be in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. One day God would make a way for the restoration of fellowship. So even though this first garden was immensely tragic, God was already prophesying, already prophesying of the hope that He was going to lay before all of them. And so when the time was full, 
God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life and obeyed His Father from His heart in everything that God commanded Him to do. And now this Jesus stood in the second garden, the garden of crushing, roughly in the area where Adam was. And there He received the most impossible, difficult command that you can imagine. Adam had received the easiest command. Jesus now receives the most difficult command. He was commanded to joyfully and willingly walk right into the path of suffering and death that his Father had created for him from before the foundation of the world. Now it's one thing to suffer, but it's another thing to know the particulars of your suffering and to walk right into the heart of it on purpose in obedience to God. Jesus was commanded to joyfully and willingly embrace rejection and ridicule and false accusations and abuse and even torture. Jesus was commanded to joyfully and willingly drink the cup that his Father had prepared for him. And we know from texts like Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25 that that cup was the cup of wrath that was prepared to be poured out on the nations of the world. You see, beloved, we have this horrible propensity in us to minimize our sin and the importance of our sin, the seriousness of our sin. We're always saying it wasn't that big of a deal. We're always making it low. But in God's mind, sin is extremely, extremely serious. In God's mind, our sin evokes wrath inside of Him, and that wrath must be poured out. It would be unjust for God not to pour that wrath out. Every one of us has felt that sense of rage when we know that someone has committed an offense and yet they get off on some technicality or they get off because the the cops bungled the deal or something like that. We feel rage. Like how could this person be set free when he or she has done something so horrible? And beloved, that is just an, an echo of the rage that God feels in His heart every time that we sin against Him. Sin begets wrath. And wrath must be poured out. It's that simple. It has to be poured out. We cannot imagine the purity and the power of the wrath of God that was contained in the cup. And yet Jesus was asked to drink it all joyfully and willingly. This is why He was so greatly troubled. This is why He was so distressed. This is why he was so sorrowful that he cried in tears and sweat drops of blood and screamed out to his father, oh, father, please make another way for me. This is why he fell on his face in the dirt, the one who had created the dirt, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who sustained every grain of it with the word of his power, put his face right into it because he knew the enormity of the wrath that he was about to bear. This is why he begged his father not once, not twice, but three times to remove this cup from him. In light of what happened in the first garden, beloved, do you see what's happening here in the second garden? Do you understand? Like the disciples, are you asleep right now? Or are you paying attention? Do you see? Do you see the glory of Gethsemane? Do you understand that if Jesus, like Adam, refused to obey his Father and drink this cup, that the hope of humanity would literally be vaporized? 
Unless this man's infinitely valuable blood was shed for the world, there would be no forgiveness of sins, and therefore we would be utterly lost and hopeless before God. That's what's at stake in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything is on the line, and I mean everything. All of history has come to this moment, and the host of heaven waits with bated breath to see what this Son of God will do. I think it's fair and biblical to say that Jesus was tempted with great intensity that night. I think it's fair and biblical to say that in his flesh he really did want out of this situation, and I think that was a temptation for him. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man, and he has been and will be both things forever. But to deny him the, 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 the seriousness of this temptation this night would be a very serious error. You remember in the book of Hebrews where the author says that Jesus was tempted in every single way, just as we are. And that's very real, beloved. And I believe that this night here was the pinnacle of all of his temptations, even more severe than what happened in the 40 days of testing in the wilderness. Everything was on the line here, and Jesus was tempted to just say, no thank you, not going to drink that cup of wrath. But in the end, in the end, Jesus Christ did not sin. In the end, Jesus Christ joyfully and willingly called upon the name of His Father and looked for the power to overcome temptation, which He received. No temptation has overtaken anyone except what is common to man, but God makes a way out. And Jesus chose that way out. Praise be to God. Jesus joyfully and willingly submitted His will to the will of His Father and said those words that caused a rising sun to shine into the darkness of night and bring the words of living light. Not my will, Father, but Your will be done. And He said this not once, not twice, but three times. And having said it, he emerged from that garden with his face set like flint toward the cross. And he neither hesitated nor blinked again until it was finished. Jesus joyfully and willingly walked with his disciples right toward his betrayer after this moment. He joyfully and willingly submitted himself to arrest and imprisonment and false accusations and a kangaroo court that sentenced him to the torture of flogging and of crucifixion. He joyfully and willingly put his life into the hands of those who not only tortured him, but who mocked him and ridiculed him. They had no idea that this one had actually created them. He had knitted them together in their mother's wombs, and he was upholding them right that moment by the very word of his power. And instead of honoring him as they should, they spit on him and ripped out his beard and mocked him and put the crown of thorns on his head and did all kinds of things to shame the Lord of glory. The Lord joyfully and willingly endured the pain of watching his closest friends for whom he had done so much forsake him in order to save their own skins. Indeed, all the disciples fled away in accordance with the Scriptures. And when the hour had come and darkness had fallen upon the land, they hung him up on that cross where he cried out in the words of Psalm 22 and said, Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he knew all along that his father was pouring out his wrath, but that one day soon he would raise him again from death. You know, you see, he knew the whole psalm 
Read Psalm 22 from beginning to end and you'll see that Jesus spoke those first words probably with a little bit of a smile on His face because it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. Jesus knew that the Father would vindicate Him. And I can imagine, as I said last week, that even in this moment, His Father caused a wind or some other servant to raise up and help Jesus to smell that fragrance that was still in His hair and in His beard and on His chest and on His back and on His feet. That powerful, fragrant, expensive anointing oil that was a symbol of the joy set before Him. And so the Son endured the cross. And finally, in absolute and perfect submission to His Father's will, Jesus cried out with a loud cry and He breathed His last and He died. At that very moment, which you would think would be horribly sad, at that very moment, a couple things happened which showed that this was a moment of joy, not a moment of sadness. The moment that Jesus breathed His last, the curtain of the temple, which was probably about 40 feet tall, Ripped from top to bottom. It was torn in two. It opened up the way for the nations to come to God through Jesus Christ. And just as a little bit of proof of that fact, one of the Gentile soldiers who had helped crucify Jesus and was sitting right there and watched Him die, when he noticed everything in heaven and on earth that had happened, everything that was involved in this man's death, he fell to his face at the foot of the cross. And he said, surely this man was the Son of God or is the Son of God. And this centurion believed. He was a sort of first fruits of the many millions of people all across this planet who would come to believe in this one who had died so that we could live in perfect submission to his Father. He did it, beloved, and it was finished. And just as he said, God the Father smiled on His obedience, and on the morning of the third day, the Father issued the Word and reversed the curse and caused Jesus Christ to rise again from death. God caused the stone of the tomb to roll away so that the Lord of glory, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, could come walking out of that grave that was carved into the rock He came walking out of that grave as the absolute victor over all of his enemies. Praise be to God. Jesus had chosen the will of the Father over the comforts of his flesh. He had spoken those sacred words, not my will, but your will be done. And now the Father vindicated him and brought him back from death. Now Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. Now Jesus lifted His arms to deliver everyone who through fear of death had been subject to lifelong slavery. And His Father anointed Him with an oil of gladness that is sweet and strong and very, very expensive and everlasting, the aroma of which will linger upon the body of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's a fragrance that will speak forever of the joy that was set before Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Having submitted to the will of His Father in this garden of crushing, and having endured the cross, and having risen from the dead, Jesus a few days later ascended into heaven in the the sight of His disciples, where He has gone to prepare a place for those who believe in Him. Jesus has gone there and He is there right now 
preparing for us a third garden in which we will live, live and delight in Him forever and ever and ever. This garden is glorious, and it is the direct result of the joyful and willing submission of Jesus to His Father. He had prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And ironically, what he meant by that was, since you can do everything, Father, you can get me out of this situation. But the Father, seeing a higher, deeper, greater joy, said, Son, all things are possible for me, and so I will sustain you in this suffering. I will get you through all of it, and together we will reverse the curse. Together we will make all things new. And so now listen to the words of Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If I can put it in other words. And by the way, I'm not making this up. The language of Revelation 21 and 22 is so similar to the language of Genesis 2 where it talks about the garden that you just cannot miss the point that the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And in the middle, there's this other garden, the garden of crushing that led to the third garden. So when Jesus said, I am making all things new, He was saying, I am going to prepare a garden for you, a garden of great and eternal delight. It will have no sun or moon or lamp, for my glory will be its light. It will have no hospitals. It will have no mercy ministries. For I will wipe away every tear, and death and sorrow will be no more. It will have a great river of life emerging from my throne and flowing right through the middle of it. And on either bank of that river will be two trees, both of which are called the trees of life. And that tree will bear twelve kinds of fruit, one fruit for every month. And you'll be free to eat of it all that you would like. And the leaves of that tree will be for the healing of the nations and the joy of the nations and the blessing of the nations. That tree will lead you into the place where there are pleasures evermore. So indeed, the Lord will gather us on that shore where there are pleasures evermore. Beloved, this is not a fairy tale. This is the reality of what has happened since Jesus rose from the dead. He emerged from that garden, endured the cross, and got straight to work on another garden that you and I will enjoy in Him forever if we believe. And so, my friends, the call of today is very clear. Hear the word of the Lord. God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit bid you to come. They bid you to come, take, and eat of the fruit that Jesus Christ has prepared for you. They bid you to come and drink of the fountain of life without cost. He's done it all for you, and all He says is come now and believe in Me. And if you believe in Me, that is your ticket into the garden of delights where there are pleasures forevermore. So believe in Him, beloved. Have eyes to see and believe. Let's pray. Our Father, I love You so much. And I thank You with all of my heart for the couple months of meditation that You and I have had on Gethsemane. Thank You for the privilege of talking about these things today. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit that You would reveal the glories of what happened in this moment. I pray that You would grant Your people a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of You. 
I pray that they would come into a deeper understanding of what You've done and a deeper love for You because of what You've done. And Father, I pray for anybody here this morning who might not believe in You. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that You would let the scales fall from their eyes, that You would turn on the lights, let them see how great and glorious and gracious You are. In the mighty and merciful and matchless name of Jesus Christ, I ask for all these things. Amen.